This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi today. As I mentioned off the top, we're going to talk about the Calgary Stampede on the show today and particularly the chuck wagon races, which have been particularly deadly uh, for the horses at this year's event. Six horses now were euthanized at the Calgary Stampede in total. Uh, as after they suffered injuries in the chuck wagon races. I mean, this is definitely the most kind of, I guess, exciting event at the rodeo, but clearly also the most dangerous when it comes to the welfare of those horses. So that's our hot question of the day now. Six horses have died at this year's Calgary Stampede. Is it time to ban chuck wagon races at the event, would you say that, yes, we should ban the chuck wagon races, that it's cruel and risky, or would you say, no, it's a tradition at the Calgary Stampede? At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on the poll today, at CKNW on Twitter. Also, phone me on the buzz line on this one right now and tell me what you think. Should the chuck wagon races be banned? 604-331-BUZZ is the number, 604 331 Nine nine. Please welcome Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News, to the studio. Keith, hey, Smitty. Thanks for coming on. Um, lots <clears throat> of lots of cover here. I want to ask you about some of these public inquiries that are. You know, we got the gas price inquiry mm-hmm. ramping up this week. We got the uh, a new sort of schedule out uh, for the uh, money laundering inquiry. But first, let me get your take on something else, and that's our hot question of the day, which is the chuck wagon races at the Calgary Stampede. And I'm looking forward to hearing calls from listeners mm-hmm. on this today to see what they think about it. Six horses this year had to be euthanized after they were injured in, in this event. You used to work at the Calgary mm-hmm. Stampede, right? You were like on the midway there. I knew you worked at the PNE, but you did the Stampede too. <coughs> I not only did the Stampede, I did the rodeo circuit in Western Canada for five years back when I was a wayward youth. Uh, so very familiar with uh, all rodeo events. I've always had a problem with the chuck wagon races. I've seen them not only at the Stampede, but at other rodeo circuits as well. It's basically, you and I were talking before we came on, it's like a, almost like a demolition derby with horses. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, a, it's an exciting event, but you could tell the horses, from my take, and again, I've been around rodeos a long time when I was a kid, uh, the horses seem to be absolutely petrified as they ran around this this. How course. can you tell that? Well, just how do you know they're petrified? Well, it, again, it just who wouldn't be? I don't know. I mean, even the drivers seem to be petrified yeah. because they were always in within a a whisker of you know going uh, end over tea kettle here. And it, again, it just compared to other rodeo events I've seen, whether it's calf roping, uh, bronco uh, riding, uh, this these events just seem fraught with peril from the get go. You always look again. People go to some auto races in the hopes that they're going to see a crash. And I just think that uh, chuck wagon races are very akin to that. Yeah, I mean, it is an exciting event. I mean, you watch it on TV. It's this, uh, you know, visual spectacular of these, uh, you know, these covered wagons racing around this track with these huge team of horses. But like you said, I mean, who knows what the horses are going through their mind, but I I think they probably are scared, you know. Well, six horses put down in stampede strikes me as absolutely ridiculous and shouldn't be tolerated. So you think that that particular event should be banned? I think it should. And again, I'm not an anti-rodeo guy. As I say, I made my living on a... On a traveling rodeo circuit, uh, not being a cowboy, but being a midway guy. And uh, oh, I thought you were a cowboy. 
<laughs> no. Some people think I am in, in politics, but no, that's not the case. I never, I never roped a steer, I'll tell you that. Okay. Here's the thing. I'm looking forward to the calls on this one later on the show because one of the things that occurs to me is, you know, it may be kind of a simple kind of remedy saying, well, just ban that, that particular event. I mean, mm -hmm. this, this event's too dangerous. You got to get rid of it. But then some people might say, well, is that the slippery slope? You know, is that like the thin edge of the wedge? Because once you ban that one, do you start banning the oh, other events next? Do you ban the bull, you know, the bull riding and the calf roping? And there's an organized anti-rodeo lobby for sure. It's always been there. I mean, the, people have been fighting the Cloverdale Rodeo uh, here in Metro Vancouver for some years. I used to work the Cloverdale Rodeo uh, for a number of summers as well. And I remember this is years ago. There'd be protests there about uh, some of the events there. Even the I remember as a kid the uh, greased um, uh, piglet. Chase. Oh, the, gre the greased pig. <laughs> the greased little piglet would run around the uh, the sort of mini barnyard there as little kids would try to catch the, the piglet for a uh, for a prize. I'm sure the piglet was pretty scared, but I mean, they, they, well, the, the, the piglets were not put down no, and euthanized. They, they were not. They were and they were never injured. But there yeah. is a there is a pretty vociferous and organized anti-rodeo lobby oh, that yeah. emerges every every year come the Cloverdale Rodeo or the Calgary And Stampede. this does, something like this does not help the rodeo's cause at all. Not I at mean, all. you know, six horses getting put down. I mean, that's a lot of horses and well, now you're, you want to go back to personal experience. You're a former thoroughbred horse owner. Uh, many years ago, and yes. And there is now a uh, an effort in, in the United States among some groups to ban horse, horse uh, racing because a number of horses, the thoroughbreds are very... Not brittle, but they're not the most the sturdiest of steeds, and there, there's been a number of uh, injuries that have led to euthanized. Ma many, many, many years ago, my dad was a big fan of horse racing, and I, uh, you know, I just more for, for sort of some fun with my dad. We bought a, I think it was a five percent interest in a racehorse that we split mm -hmm. between. So I owned like two and a half percent of a horse, a racehorse. I used to joke that I owned the nose because hopefully that's what it would win by. <laughs> But I'll tell you, that's a rich man's game because it mm -hmm. burned a hole in my pocket big time. I was not a horse owner for very long because it was very expensive. Traveling Hector, wasn't it, the horses? No, it was called um, Blushing Hector. Blushing Hector. I knew Hector was in there. Blushing <laughs> Hector was the name of the horse. And this horse is in the parlance of the racetrack. They used to call this a win-shy horse. <laughs> Did not like to win. And... Not only were the, the vet bills and all the other bills, but of course, every time at race, I put a big bet on it yeah. to win because I didn't want to be standing there with a $2 ticket in my hand at the winner's circle photo. So I burned, I, I lost too much money on that. But I'm a horse racing fan. I had to fan. get out of it. I grew up at Exhibition Park, now called Hastings Park. And again, yeah. uh, I'm not, uh, I'm a big fan of horse racing, but I noticed that as more and more horses are euthanized in horse racing, there seems to be more of a pressure uh, to come down on the issue. Yes, I don't you're think, right. I don't think it's going to disappear. I don't think that's a comparable to the uh, chuck wagon races, though, which I do think are just carnage waiting to happen. Okay. Let's check out the hot question on that, by the way, which is, is it time to ban these chuck wagon races? Okay, this is kind of not surprising going almost three to one. 73% of listeners today saying, yes, ban the chuck wagon races at the Calgary Stampede. 27% saying, no, it's okay. At CKNW on Twitter is where to vote on that but and get set to call me up I on it later. I suspect if we did the same poll of one of our sister stations in Calgary, those numbers might the be reversed. The opposite turned around. Yeah. Well, yeah. sure. As is often the case on a lot of public issues, yeah. whether it's the Trans Mountain Pipeline or the Chuck Wagon races. Okay, let's talk about some of the public inquiries uh, that are going and are set to get running. Mm -hmm. well, you want to start with the gas price sure. inquiry? Okay, this is set to start hearing some 
uh, have some public events this week. A couple days. Yep. S- some of the oil companies, though, still not playing ball in terms of revealing their profits, right? Yeah, no, uh, the, the, the BC Utilities Commission, which is conducting the hearings, has tried to offer some assurances of, of secrecy uh, because these are this is a competitive situation amongst uh, oil companies and, and gas producers. So uh, that's appeased some of the company's concerns, but others still remain uh, sort of balking at this. They don't want to give up, you know, a competitive secret. So I've long can't thought... blame them. No, I don't blame them. And I've, I've never thought this, this hearing exercise was ever going to get to revealing any bombshells. I mean, this is... A, a lot of stuff is fairly wide open. Interesting, again, it cannot visit the issue of taxation. You know, right, uh, right. about 34, per, 34 cents of every liter of gas is attributed to some form of taxation, either provincially or federally. Uh, it's not going to look at government policies in terms of uh, what could potentially expand the supply of, um, of uh, oil and metro, which is another pipeline. So some, some key things are off the table here. But it'll be interesting if they can get some of these people on the stand to talk about how prices are set. I think it's it might be an eye-opening exercise for for many people because the vagaries of uh, how gas prices are set is sort of the well, ultimate mystery. And this might shed some light on it, but I don't think any bombshells. And it's not going to lead to the reduction in the price of gas. Well, I was kind of cynical about this event from the start and just wondering if it was very political, designed to kind of insulate John Horgan from any criticism about gas taxes which are the highest in North America, and that's what this is about. He wants he wants to plant this seed in people's mind that this is about the big oil companies gouging, gouging you at gouging. the gas at yep. the gas pump, and that's what this is about. But I was very cynical that it was actually going to accomplish anything. Now uh, I remain to be convinced, though, like mm-hmm. you. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe there would be some interesting testimony at this thing that'll surprise and enlighten everybody, which well, would be good. I think it'll be some, it might be some interesting testimony. I don't, again, I don't think there's any bombshells to be, to be dropped here. And again, two days of hearings. They've got to have a report in by August 30th. This is yeah, not, this, this is a short time frame. Very short. There's not a huge amount of research to be done here. I think it's not quite a perfunctory exercise, but it's certainly not leading to lower gas prices or again, some startling revelation that we're unaware of. Let's talk about another public inquiry, Keith, that's got a much longer time frame, mm-hmm. and that is the money laundering public inquiry prompt. Promised by the government. There had been some speculation that this thing would be up and running and maybe hearing testimony this fall. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the council over there is saying that no, we're probably looking at 2020. You give a tip of the hat to the Globe and Mail article on that. So, there, the, the council over there is saying we'll start hearing probably public testimony in 2020. So, I don't know. I mean, is this thing already delayed? Well, you know, it. We've, we've talked about this before, but how do you get up a public inquiry up and running? Uh, this is a mammoth exercise. It's looking not. We're not talking about casinos here. This is the mandate is well, to it look includes at casinos, casinos and everything else, real estate, uh, luxury goods, uh, the banking and financial sector. Yeah. We're talking about a huge amount of research that has to be done here, and a huge potentially number of witnesses. Uh, so Brock Martland, the counsel for uh, for Austin Cullen, the commissioner, is telling the Globe and Mail and article out today that uh, hearings not until twenty twenty. But he says they're doing a lot of work until then, doing a lot of prep work. He likens it to watching a duck a duck go across a pond. You don't see anything uh, going on, but below the surface, you see the feet paddling furiously. And he says that's what's happening with the inquiry. They're literally trying to get their proverbial ducks in a row <laughs> before they get everybody on the witness stand uh, come next spring. But then, having said that, Smitty. He, 
so again, this is an extensive uh, mammoth uh, exercise. Are we talking months of testimony? And then he's got to write a report by twenty twenty one, the spring of twenty twenty one. Which, again, I've, a lot of us have thought this is not going to be accomplished during that type yeah, fi- time frame before final, the next election. Final report, spring of twenty twenty one, but also an interim report mm-hmm. in the fall of twenty twenty. Yeah. So I mean, if they're going to start only hearing testimony in 2020 are they really going to be in a position to write an interim report within a few months well i i I just don't see how the interim report can encompass all the sectors they're supposed to be looking at perhaps an interim report that can only get its head around the casino and and the luxury goods sector maybe the real estate sector i'm not sure you can get it all done in such a short time frame i don't think it can get done and here's one thing i'm wondering about let's say this thing doesn't wrap up before the next election which i think is possible does it then turn into an election issue if the liberals are forced to say whether or not they would continue it if, if they won government? Yeah, I, I mean, I think once once we get to that point, I think uh, the thing will just become a sort of an animal of its own creation, and it'll just keep going. And we've seen that before with other public inquiries. You can put a time frame on these things, but they get a life of their own, and there's really... Uh, if they, if the one the one drawback to this, though, and I've said this before, we saw the liberal government in the nineteen two thousand and one when they were elected. They came in and shut down the Bingo Gate public inquiry, which was initiated by the NDP. That Bingo Gate inquiry was only going to be bad news for New Democrats. It had nothing to do with the. And liberals. the liberals still shut it down. The liberals shut it down because it was going nowhere. Because it was and, a waste, and, and it was a waste of time, and nobody was. And so we'll see when the hearings begin in twenty twenty whether okay. or not they they want to compel witnesses to testify. I still think a lot of lawyers are going to get involved here to stop that. Okay. Okay, real quickly, speaking of compelling witnesses to testify, could Rich Coleman be forced to testify? Could Christy Clark be forced to go on the witness stand and testify? Rich Coleman says he's got nothing to hide, nothing to lose, and he's more than willing to cooperate. He was the minister responsible for Although games. we also said he may not be able to answer all the questions. Yep, yep. and that's what that's so, what witnesses have that, that right. And uh, whether Christy Clark is up there, I don't know. I don't think you're going to see premiers up there, but I do think you're going to see some ministers who are responsible for gaming be asked to take the witness stand, okay. and I don't think they're going to refuse. Keith, thanks for coming in. Anytime. I appreciate it. Keith okay. Baldry, Global News. Three more horses have been euthanized at the Calgary Stampede following another collision during the controversial chuck wagon races. The deaths increased the number of horses who have been put down this year as a direct result of that event to six horses now, six horses euthanized after the chuck wagon races. Stampede, Calgary Stampede CEO Warren Connell says they will review the safety and best practices of the event before the competition is set to return next year. Here he is. We review all of our practices and procedures, including the penalties, including the dealings with the drivers, and we'll continue to do that. Okay, we did reach out to the Calgary Stampede to get an official on the show today. Uh, they said they were not available to come on. So what's going to happen at the event next year? How should the Calgary Stampede react potentially to changing the format of this race or maybe banning the chuck wagon races Altogether, let's check in now with Rebecca Bretter. She's an animal rights lawyer with Bretter Law. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for coming on. When when you hear about the latest numbers here, I mean, six horses put down at this event in Calgary. What what goes through your mind? It's unbelievable, and unbelievable in the sense not like it's a total surprise because it's not. What we know is that 
it's now predictable that we can expect deaths or injuries every single year at these truck wagon races. It's unbelievable in the sense that year after year, we hear the Calgary Stampede organizers say, we care about the horses, we care about the welfare, we check the horses out. And, you know, to give this impression that they care about the welfare of the horses, if they did, if they seriously and genuinely cared about the welfare of the horses, we wouldn't be seeing these deaths happen year in and year out. They would cancel the chuck wagon races. What is it that's so dangerous about these, this particular event? Well, I think you get, uh, you get a combination of factors. You get a lot of horses racing at extremely high speeds within close proximity of each other, carrying or pulling these heavy weights, uh, turning these really tight corners, accidents are inevitable. Like, it's just, I I don't think we need a lawyer to say that. It's just kind of common sense that the risk factor is very high. Yeah, it's almost like... um like a horse version of a like a demolition derby or something. I mean, it's almost like collisions are are just bound to occur. And I don't know. Maybe that's part of the excitement of people watching it. I mean, it's, it's almost like watching a well, like a race car race. Like some people, some people would never admit it, but a lot of people will watch a race car race because they hope they're going to see a crash. Well, you know what? I mean, if that's the reason, then yeah. so be it. But the problem is, is that humans, <laughs> they have a choice whether they want to get into that car, right? They have a yeah. say whether they want to risk their lives. The horses don't. We put their lives into jeopardy. Now, of course, I, I, I could see, and it's a really controversial issue, right? Because you get people who absolutely love the stampede. They love watching these races. Here I am, a Vancouverite, you know, t- telling them that these truck wagon races are are really dangerous and that they should be canceled and that it's been a long tradition and all that. But we have to really question that even if it is a, tra- a tradition, uh, so let's assume that's true, that it is a tradition, is a tradition that subjects animals to suffering and, and, and I say cruelty as well, uh, does it, is it really worth the risk and the pain overall to maintain this tradition? And I say no. No, we see yeah. lots of traditions in human history that humans have come around and we realize that it's time to forego a certain tradition because we've gotten to that mm-hmm. stage. You know, you just look at the cancellation of cetaceans in captivity now. We have a federal law that bans uh, entertainment of whales and dolphins. And I think this is coming. You know, I think there's no question that people's attitudes in regards to animal welfare and the treatment of animals, especially when it comes to just purely entertainment value, things are changing. Yeah, no, things, public attitudes and understandings and, and feelings on this kind of thing does change over time. And we've seen that with some of the examples you've cited. And and I wonder if maybe this event this year with six horses being euthanized, if that's like maybe the potentially the tipping point on on this particular event. Um, There's a review going on now. But you know what? Like even people who are into rodeo and love the event, like you say, and it's a tradition in Calgary. I mean, not even people who are totally into rodeo and love it want to see animals dying being put down on right in the track before them. I mean, that's horrifying. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we know that there are uh, former rodeo or even current rodeo participants who are saying that, yeah, you know what, like I like rodeos and I like participating in the stampede, but the chuck wagon races are, are over the top. Yeah, I'm speaking to Rebecca Bredder. She's an animal rights lawyer. I'm wondering, Rebecca, if you ban the chuck wagon races... Is, th- is that kind of 
some people might think that's the thin edge of the wedge. Like if you ban that event and then what's next? Then, well, now you're going to want to ban bull riding or calf roping or these other these other events. I mean, do you think the mm-hmm. whole thing do you think the whole thing should be banned, rodeo in general, period? Quite frankly, absolutely. There's no question. Yeah. Calf roping, chuck wagon racing, anytime you have an animal that's subjected to a risk for dying, that should be cancelled. There's absolutely no reason. You know, we have I think we've evolved as a society where there's so many other fun things that we can do to entertain ourselves. We don't need to put the lives and welfare of animals at risk just so we could say, ooh, that was cool to watch. You know, I think we've really gone past that. I think not only... Well, well, of- well, hang on. Well, you may have gone past it, but clearly a lot of other people have not. I mean, this is still a, you know, a huge event that draws million, a million people a year. Yes, yeah, true. But the stampede would still continue on without these animal events. It, yeah. it would. I mean, you have all sorts of different attractions there that people go for. Lots of people go to the Stampede without attending the actual chuck wagon race. I, 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 won- I wonder if, um, like, I th- I think these chuck wagon races may may very may likely be banned. I mean, after the carnage we've seen this year, but I wonder if people might make a distinction. Well, okay, the chuck wagon races that's obviously too dangerous because we're seeing too much carnage there. But I'm I'm okay with the other ones like. You know, you mentioned calf roping or bull riding or whatever, and obviously there's animals in distress at all of these events, but is there a rational, reasonable way to look at this and say, well, you know, these some of these other events are less dangerous to the animal? No, quite frankly, no. The Vancouver Humane Society uh, has done a, a, a really good sort of research on this, showing how these types of events subject animals to suffering and distress. There's no question. I mean, the calf roping, you yeah. just have to think about, you know, not to, to, to put human emotions onto an animal, but still, you know, you, you're chasing this poor little calf around, tying uh, a, a, a rope, yanking its neck until it falls to the ground. There's no way you could say that the animal enjoys being subjected to that. But there isn't. And so I mm-hmm. think the bottom line is that it is time to say goodbye to these events you, that that include animals. Do you think that, like, often, what, one of the most often cited defenses of rodeo is that this is a part of a tradition in Alberta, which has a great tradition of ranching and cowboys and, and that kind of thing, and this has been going on for a long time, but I wonder if it's also turned, it's turned into a big money event, right? Like, I mean, these chuck mm-hmm. wagon races are, uh, they, there's huge prize money to be won in these races, and the tickets are very expensive, and there's corporate sponsorship, and Absolutely. so it's not really just you know kind of a a, a, a tradition of way of way people grew up. It's also like it's become a big commercial uh, money making event. Yeah, it's become a huge commercial endeavor, and yeah. I really I challenge anyone to look at me straight in the eyes and to tell me that the only reason why they really want these truck wagon races is to showcase the tradition and the way of agricultural history. Instead of it really being the main reason, if not the only reason nowadays, which is it's a moneymaker. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's just so obvious. Rebecca, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Rebecca Bredder, she is an animal rights lawyer with Bredder Law. Let's talk about BC's gas price public inquiry now set to get started, get down to work this week with some uh, public hearings. There had been some 
reluctance by some of the big oil companies to fully participate in this inquiry, especially when it came to revealing their profit margins uh, to this gas price inquiry. The inquiry, which is being run by the BC Utilities Commission, has now uh, offered some new confidentiality uh, guarantees. Some of the oil companies now appearing to go along with it if they can disclose their profit margins in, in private, uh, knowing it will not that information will not be made public. They might go along with it. Some of the oil companies still balking at that, though. Here's one of the things going through my mind. Will this inquiry really get to the bottom of anything? Will we find out any bombshell revelations or new information that we didn't know already about gas prices in Metro Vancouver? Let's check in with Michael Irvin now. He's the senior vice president at the Kent Group. That's a consultant consulting company for the petroleum sector. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Michael. Uh, pleased to be with you, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think about this uh, gas price inquiry this week? Well, you know, certainly it's, it's been motivated by concerns uh, on the part of the B.C. government and in turn on the part of consumers uh, over high gasoline prices uh, in British Columbia, in particular the lower mainland. Um, so, you know, it's, it's good to do. I think anything that can shed light on, uh, on an industry that really is poorly understood by the consumers and, uh, and government alike is, is, has, has no downside to it. Okay, what about the, uh, these oil companies and some of their reluctance to share their, their bottom line numbers, their profit margins? I mean, I can kind of understand that. I mean, that's pretty sensitive commercial uh, data that you'd want to typically keep secret in a competitive industry, right? Well, exactly. Uh, you know, the, the, this, uh, this, we're talking about a, a private sector uh, industry, um, unlike what uh, most uh, businesses that the Utilities Commission uh, regulates, uh, their, their monopolies are near monopolies, and that's simply not the case here. And like any business, uh, I, I can understand their reluctance to basically, you know, uh, <laughs> show exactly what the, what those profit margins are. It would be un, rather unseemly to do that. Why are gas prices so high in Metro Vancouver, in, in your opinion? I mean, we've already heard from Premier John Horgan saying he thinks this comes down to gouging uh, by the big oil companies that every time they you gas up your car, they're trying to pick your pocket with predatory pricing or gouging. Um, is there any evidence of that, or what? how do you explain the high prices here? Well, you know, it, it, it's pretty difficult to explain, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of walk you through, you know, what, what makes up the price of gasoline. And, and it starts at crude oil, which refiners buy in order to turn it into gasoline. Uh, what refiners sell that refined product for really is a matter of supply and demand. It's a commodity, much like housing, uh, the housing market in Vancouver, much like uh, uh, you know, commodities like gold or, or other sorts of things, it's, it's based not on what it costs to produce, but um, what, the, what the demand is relative to the supply of it. And in BC, um, supply is very tight and demand is very strong. And that has been made uh, more so by the, fa the fact that uh, there's insufficient capacity in the Trans Mountain Pipeline to get any more gasoline from the uh, heavy uh, refinery-producing regions to BC. Uh, we only have two small refineries 
in uh, British Columbia. They're amongst the smaller, smallest of the refineries in Canada. And uh, so there's, there's very few options there to get more supply in, in, in a market that's uh, growing in terms of population and demand. Okay, if it comes down to supply and demand, can you, can you uh, envision any scenario where this inquiry somehow has a bombshell moment where they, we suddenly learn something brand new that we never knew before and we're all going to go, wow, this is just mind-blowing? No, in a word. No, I don't um, think so. <laughs> you know, this is an industry that, that we've followed um, for decades and... Uh, uh, you know, there's there's nothing out there uh, in in the public domain that is somehow being kept away from the public. Uh, the transparency of pricing is is, is very evident. Uh, we we know what crude prices are. We know what wholesale gasoline prices are. Anybody in the public can look those things up on our Kent Group website or other resources. Uh, we know what the amount of taxation is, and so you can work backwards to see what the price looks like without taxing it. And, and, you know, as an aside, you know, BC, in particular Vancouver, is one of the most highly taxed uh, areas uh, in the country. So, uh, right. you know, that's another factor that adds to it. So it is quite transparent, and, and I think the inquiry is, is basically going to rehash all of those things, which, again, are, are, are certainly uh, out there in the public domain already. Yeah. Speaking to Michael Irvin from the Kent Group about the gas price inquiry set to get underway this uh, this week, I, I wonder, uh, Michael, if there's anything the government can do to lower gas prices. If at the end of the day we get a report from this inquiry saying, and it concludes the gas prices are too high and it's not fair, is there anything the government can do about it? Well, in a word, yes. Um, um, some are more effective than others. What they can try to do is regulate the price at the pump. In, in other words, uh, tell oil companies, listen, it's a dollar. That's for example, a dollar fifty-five now. You're required to sell it at no less than a dollar fifty. Uh, the fact is that all that's going to do is squeeze what is a very, very narrow uh, dealer margin. Uh, to levels that will cause a lot of stations to close. The hmm. the amount of margin at the retail level is only in the order of 10 to 12 cents per liter, uh, less in some markets than others. But, you know, if you were to take 5 cents out of that 10 cent per liter markup uh, that the dealer has, and that's gross markup, not profit margin, uh, that would half half their revenue from the sale of gasoline. And, you know, that clearly would be unsustainable. The other thing the government could do is, is lower taxes, um, but yeah. I think we all know that's not going to happen. Um, to, to regulate the price of crude oil or to regulate the wholesale price of gasoline is untenable. They are global commodities. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of levers there, but, you know, which ones would actually work um, would that really don't exist. I, I think that... It's pretty evident, especially from this government, that cutting gas taxes is not an option. I don't think that's going to happen. Whether the government would take the very aggressive measure to step in and regulate gas prices and tell and tell the oil companies and the gas stations this is the maximum amount you could charge you can charge people, I think that would be a very dramatic intervention that I don't think this government's willing to do. I wonder beyond that, is there anything else that can be done? You you mentioned earlier the possibility of a, a watchdog function for government, right? To sort of keep an eye on these gas prices. 
Well, you know, that's a possibility. And I should add that there are some jurisdictions in Canada that do regulate the maximum price of gasoline. And they exist in in each of the four Atlantic provinces, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland. And our research has shown that... um, Following those those regulations going into effect, in other words, following the regulation of the prices at the pump, uh, the the benefit the consumer has been zero. In other words, in our research, we see that the the price of gasoline in those provinces, after you adjust for tax differences, is no different than in unregulated Canada. Um, oh, and okay. and that really speaks to what I said earlier. All you're regulating isn't. You're not regulating the dollar fifty-five. You're regulating the ten or twelve cent per liter margin at the dealer's level. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. Okay, Michael. Thanks for coming on with your expertise today. Okay, my pleasure. Appreciate it. It's Michael Irvin from the Kent Group on the gas price inquiry. Let's talk about the passenger bill of rights. Uh, big chunk of it comes into effect today. So this is from the federal government. Uh, $2,400, that's the compensation you could receive if you're bumped from a flight for reasons beyond the airline's control. Lost luggage, say you lose your luggage or your luggage is damaged, you could be eligible for up to $2,100 in compensation. More requirements slated to take effect later in the year, including compensation of up to $1,000 for a flight delay or cancellation. Let's uh, talk about this now uh, with my guest, John McKenna. He is the president and CEO of the Air Transport Association of Canada. They represent the airline industry in the in the country. Hiya, John. Hi, hello. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, first of all, I know you guys are not happy with these uh, with these regulations that have come into to effect today. Tell me what your concerns are. All right. First of all, I want to correct you on what you said. The compensation is when something is by paid by airlines is when something is within their responsibility, not beyond their responsibility. Right. So, right yeah. 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 And, and, that, yeah. and that is one of the big issues that we're talking about. We're not against these regulations. We've been working with the government to to, to develop them for a long time. Uh, we are against the fact that they are implementing them now, and we feel there's a lot of work that still needs to be done uh, on them so that they are. Uh, so they come into effect seamless, seamlessly. But the government has got a, a, a political agenda. It wants to get this through before the election so they can have a win on their scorecard or something. But So we're saying, guys, we're not against these regulations. We like a lot of things about them. But why are you doing this so quickly? Normally, the government would give us a year to you know, change the software, uh, uh, train people, find people. Now they've given us like two months. And this is crazy. That's why they did phase two, because they also realized that this was unreasonable. So our biggest concern is that some of the quirks haven't been worked out yet, and they're, and they're still pushing for it. So it's going to lead to complications. That's our, that's our biggest beef. Okay, it seems to me like some of these rules seem, I don't know, reasonable enough on the surface that, uh, that if you are bumped from your flight, which can be a, a terrible inconvenience for people, that you would be eligible for compensation if it's the airline's fault. What's wrong with that? Like, it just looks pretty simple to me. Yeah. Well, it was already the case. I mean, most airlines, have, all airlines have to have what we call tariffs. It's their own rules that they've tabled at the, uh, the Canadian Transportation Agency to say, this is what I do in such circumstances. The advantage of this law is that these rules would be the same for everybody rather than each company having their own set of rules, which is fine and easier for the passenger to deal with. We are not, we don't object to the fact now, 
bear in mind that about 150 million people travel through our airports in a given year in Canada, and there are very few instances. There are a few deplorable instances, but there are very few, so it's not a major problem. But yes, people should be compensated when they are when they are disadvantaged, when they're inconvenienced. Yeah. However, some of this compensation is outright is very, very it's outrageous and it's kinda of crazy. I mean you're still your flight's delayed, you're still getting the service but delayed and you get compensated for beyond the price of the ticket that you've paid for. We're saying uh, it shouldn't be a windfall. It should be a compensation. But the government doesn't want to go there. It's basing this on the European levels. And in Europe, passenger compensation costs are the second highest operating costs for an airline. So you can't have that and not expect rates to go up and the cost of flying to go up. It's impossible. So unfortunately, you know, the passenger is going to pay for this in the long run because there's a whole you know new set of fees coming in that are going to be significant. Okay, you've asked the government to what delay delay the implementation of this. You've gone to court to fight it too, right? Uh, this is IATA. This is the International Air Transport Association. They represent 140 airlines across the world. They're the ones that have initiated this legal action to have it delayed because, and we and we support that. They had it delayed because they figured that it's not ready for prime time yet. I mean, no, give it. Let us work it out before you implement it because that's going to cause a lot of operational problems for for everybody. So that was our that was their biggest beef. Okay, well, you've already mentioned that they have these type of uh, consumer protections already in place in Europe, and it doesn't seem yeah. to have ground the industry to a halt. I mean, people are still flying from Europe. Well, it's not going to grind the industry to a halt. I'm just saying that it's going to, it's going to add costs to flying. And in Europe, yeah. they've had them for nine years or whatever, and they're in the whole process of revisiting them altogether because some of these things are not operational, and Transport Canada is basically based there model on the current european one so we're saying uh, fine but it's just going to be costly to do and why don't you take the time to, that well, we need maybe give it so what take a year and do it right or take six months and do it right but normally they would give us a year to two years to implement any new regulations for the reasons i've told you earlier and they're not doing that this time around because they they want to get it done for the election and the passengers are going to end up you know maybe uh when things aren't clear uh, it complicates life for everybody. So we're working Correct. with them. We want, we're want we doing everything to be compliant with the law because we respect the fact that the government is fully entitled to have a law. Uh, just say, just don't, don't, don't push it. Don't push the agenda too soon because it's going to just complicate things. Thank you for coming on. Hey, you're welcome. Have a good I, day. I appreciate Bye. it. Same to you. John McKenna, he's the president and CEO of the Air Transport Association of Canada. They represent Canadian Airlines. All right, let's talk about protecting agricultural land in B.C. now. Everybody is in support of protecting farmland in this province. We've got some of the toughest laws in Canada to do that through the Agricultural Land Commission. But does it sometimes go too far? The Abbotsford Women's Centre has been told they must move their operations. Why? Because it's located on protected agricultural land. Let's check in now with Angie Appenheimer. She oversees women's programs at the centre. Hi, Angie. Hi there, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. First of all, let's talk about the work you guys do there at the Abbotsford Women's Centre. What do you guys do there? How long have you been operating? Well, we have been on that particular property for over five years. Um, in Abbotsford, we've been around since 2003. We are part of a, a worldwide network of addiction recovery centres um, in 125 countries and over 1,400 centres. 
Okay, so you specialize in, in helping women who are, uh, have addiction issues, right? Yes, we do. Yes, we are a 12-month addiction recovery and restoration program um, with a holistic uh, focus. Okay, how did the Agricultural Land Commission get involved here? Well, what we did is we were in the process of registering with the Assisted Living Registry, and um, as part of that process, we had to acquire a business license um, in and amongst the many different steps you have to do for that. And so when we got to the city and we had said, hey, we need a business license, which then took us to the planning department, which then you know took us to the ALR, and that's where the buck stopped because we were on ALR land. Okay, how did it come about that uh, you had a women's center operating on agricultural land? How did that happen? Well, we had actually been in a different residence um, on a, in a different area of Abbotsford, and we had encountered a mudslide at that time and were relocated. And we went looking for land and were advised by various, various people and different networks of people um, to check out this property on Gleaner's land, which um, we actually leased from them the Fraser Valley Gleaners, and so they had had supportive recovery as part of their designation years back, and I suppose at some point there was some, you know, gray area around, you know, it being potentially allowed. Everybody knew that it was there. It wasn't that we were keeping it in the dark, but somehow um, it, you know, that fell through the cracks, and so um, as I said, everyone was aware that we were there, but um, the actual, you know, checking of the of, of the actual black and white of whether we were allowed or not was the okay. question. Okay, so you now have been informed by the Agricultural Land Commission that you have to move, correct? Yes, yes. And they've given you two years to do that? They have. I mean, they, you know, they acknowledge the worth of our organization in the community. They know that we do, you know, a great work in terms of, you know, the housing crisis, the drug epidemic crisis, uh, yeah. they know that that piece as well. And so they have given us uh, the two years as well as um, a waiving of any bylaw infractions um, in order to move. Okay, well, I guess that's good, but they're still forcing you to move, which I think is, is unfortunate. How, how many, um, you're, you're a residential facility, right? Like the women you're helping there, they live in residence there, right? Yes, they do. Yeah. How, many, how many beds do you operate there? So we have a capacity for nine uh, women to attend the program, and then we have one staff person that is there 24-7, and so it's a resident capacity of 10. Okay, well, I think that's really important that the, these facilities are uh, operate. Then those those type of services, I think, are precious, especially at, at this time with the opioid crisis, like like you mentioned. Um, I'm just wondering if you guys could have argued at the Agricultural Land Commission that okay, well, obviously you guys are not a farm, but as I understand the program that you have for the women in residence there, don't they do some gardening or they learn some uh, some agricultural skills there? Yes, absolutely. And the Agricultural Land Commission, they had come to do a site visit as part of their process. Yeah. And so they were able to tour the property and tour the facility. And um, so we have two points of view on this. One is that, first of all, the land that is there, um, part of it is heavily treed. Part of it is not the best soil. Part of it, you know, has existing um, occupation in the United States. And so we're not even able to use that piece of the property in the States. 
And then, of course, there's the gravel areas and the concrete and whatnot that's already there. And so I, so I guess... I guess what would end up happening is that they would have to literally rip out all of those things in order to make it a viable agricultural piece of land. And really the whole area in question is three acres, of which we don't have the full access to the three acres. Um, the other piece, of course, and we had talked to them about it, is that we do use the garden as part of our, um, you know, agri-food agri- um, use in the sense of women learning how to garden, learning how to gain skills, yeah. uh, you know, a therapy, garden therapy, essentially. And so that was something that was definitely talked about. Um, at the time when they came to do the visit, we had a garden in the States, which we said, you know, we can't do that anymore because we have women that are not allowed to be in the States due to their, you know, criminal records. And so we uh, plan to move the garden to the Canadian side which they had said um, that was not a sufficient enough proposal to to be considered. Wow. So that's disappointing because it is a really big part of what we do. Um, it is a huge part of their therapy. It's a huge part of their life skills. Mm. And, you know, when they go home, they can learn how to take care of their family. They can learn what sustainable gardening looks like. And so it's not, you know, I don't know, what's the definition of farming? I know that now... In our modern culture, we are able to farm a whole lot on a very small plot of land. And so can we not embellish micro-living, you know, as part of, as part of that definition? Yeah, okay. I, th- I think that's an interesting argument, but sir, I guess obviously did not go over with the uh, Agricultural Land Commission. Do, do you think, Angie, like I said off the top, nobody's uh, against preserving farmland in British Columbia, do you think, though, that in this case it's kind of gone too far? I mean, shouldn't there be kind of a reasonable test put on some of these cases to say, look, I mean, the services that you guys are providing there are just precious in this community. Maybe give the center a break. Yeah, that, that thought has crossed our mind, to be <laughs> honest. I mean, you're talking about displacing, uh, you know, those people and all the future people. It's not just about these 10 residents. It's about, you know, it's about the waiting list. It's about yeah. the, the need in the community and the ones that are still in need of, of help. And so, um, yeah, we had our thought around this is, you know, there's, there's probably about, I think, 500 cases of, you know, in the agricultural land reserve of cases that they have to look at. And so why start with us? Why start yeah. with, I guess they have to start somewhere. But why even consider an organization that is really trying to do the best use of the land and, you know, of the society's need? My thought is, imagine, imagine if the Agricultural Land Commission could use, you know, give back a portion of the land, 10%, 5%, whatever you want to call it, to reclaim lives. Mm-hmm. You know, reclaim the land to reclaim lives, especially if that land is really not top-producing large space. What are you going to do now, Angie? Well, um, we are going to appeal the Agricultural Land okay. Commission and present the case again, um, you know, with sharing the things that I've shared with you. Um, as well, we unfortunately have to look at the same time because if the Agricultural Land Commission takes, you know, a year to get back to us or however long they take, um, we have our program to go forward. We have that waiting list I talked about. And so we are kind of forced to have to look 
And, you know, we've gone to the city, we've gone to the mayor, we've, we have a lot of support in our community, which is which we're very grateful for. At the same time, we've been told, you know what, there just isn't hardly anything out there. You're in the middle of a housing crisis. Right. And so you know, it forces us to look, and I don't know the outcome. Okay. So that is our position. Angie, thanks for telling us this story. Good luck with the appeal, and thank you for coming on. Thanks very much, Mike. All right, that's Angie Appenheimer from the Abbotsford Women's Center. Let's talk about Canada's rocky relations with China now. It seems like things started going downhill late last year when Canada arrested Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou at the request of the Americans. Since then, China has arrested and detained Canadians in apparent retaliation for that. China has banned some Canadian imports of meat and canola. We even had a Chinese... A couple of Chinese fighter jets reportedly buzz a Canadian warship a couple of weeks ago. Uh, just today, got the Chinese government confirming yet another Canadian has been detained in China on drug charges. Let's uh, talk about these issues now with my guest, Peter McKay, the former federal foreign affairs minister in the previous conservative government. Uh, he is now a partner with the international law firm Baker McKenzie. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Hey, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Appreciate it. Happy um, to do it. Uh, the Justin Trudeau government insists that they're standing up to the Chinese government over, over these disputes. I mean, we saw Trudeau uh, recently at the G20 summit where he, he did not have a, a formal face-to-face -face formal meeting with the president of China, Xi Jinping, but he did get... What do they call it? A pull aside where they, you know, a Trudeau goes and has a little, yeah, has goes goes and has a little huddle with them in the corner with an interpreter, right? That's about right. It it certainly isn't a, a planned or a, a set agenda item. It uh, it was more or less they ran into each other on the way to a cultural event. Although I'm sure it was very deliberate on the part of our prime minister, but not truly effective and not something that would allow our Prime Minister to make the case effectively for the release of Canadians and perhaps uh, one would hope uh, a return to some sort of some semblance of better diplomatic relations because depending on how you look at this the tensions have been very high and relations very low according to uh, the outgoing Chinese ambassador they're at rock bottom. Yes, indeed. I mean, what can Trudeau do though if uh, he can't get a meeting with the Chinese president if they refuse to meet with him isn't like a pull aside at a G20 about the best we could do? Or do you think we should be pressing them for a more formal sit down? Well, if you're asking me what we can and should be doing, I think yeah. one of the top of that list would be to name an ambassador to Canada. I think yeah. that would that would certainly help. And, and the outgoing ambassador, as you know, Mr. McCallum did not do much to really help the situation and apparently continues to insert with his opinions, which are, quite frankly, unhelpful. Uh, I think we can also continue to press our, our allies, as we have been doing, certainly the United States, but others, Great Britain, European allies, and, and allies that we have in the region. The difficulty, of course, is that China has been steadily escalating. Uh, you mentioned the recent arrest, but we've also seen escalation of trade sanctions on Canadian products, yep. uh, on canola, on pork and beef, and, and we don't know what is next. There is uh, real pressure on many ag sector uh, products in Canada already, and so this, this comes at a very difficult time for them. 
we also have seen, as was the case with Saudi Arabia, that they have other things in their arsenal. Bringing their students home would be a huge blow to the Canadian economy. So we, we are in a precarious position. We don't have a lot of leverage, but we do have certain things that we could do, considering that uh, we have a huge trade deficit with China right now. There's a lot of Chinese products that we could contemplate putting sanctions on, trade sanctions or tariffs. And we can also consider stepping up inspections, which is what led to the allegations somehow that there was a risk for China to import Canadian pork and beef. So there are things that we can do to retaliate that would send a message to China. And, and right now, it appears that we are really capitulating. WTO sanctions, UN complaints, there are other ways in which we can voice our displeasure that would perhaps get China's attention. But it all goes back to what you said, and that is that Canada, following an international request from the United States to follow our treaty obligations, took into custody Miss Meng Wanzhou. But look at how she's been treated compared to how Canada's hostages is how I would describe them have been treated. Okay, you mentioned that maybe we should rely on our allies more. What about the Americans? I remember uh, Donald Trump at one point said that, oh, don't worry, I can, I can intervene for you and I can talk to the Chinese president on, on Justin Trudeau's behalf. Do we know if Trump ever did that? Did he ever, did he ever make a representations on Canada's behalf to the Chinese president? Well, it's very unclear whether there was a specific reference to the hostages in particular. Um, There has been very sketchy reporting of that, and the Canadian government has been very slow to confirm any detail of that discussion. So it certainly wasn't effective if if it was raised at all, and and I would suggest that we are running out of options. The United States, of course, uh, ironically benefits from the sanctions that have been placed on Canadian products because their farmers can pick up those contracts. Mm. Speaking to former Foreign Affairs Minister Peter McKay about uh, Canada-Chinese relations, you mentioned the possibility of Canada imposing retaliatory tariffs. We've seen what the sanctions that China has taken against our products, especially meat and canola. Um, I remember when we were in a fight with the Americans. I remember Trump came after our aluminum and our steel, and we didn't hesitate to, to fire back at them and, and put retaliatory tariffs on their stuff. That is absolutely correct. And yeah. so it begs to, to, it stands to reason that we would do the same. And uh, with a very large number of Chinese products coming into Canada, some yeah. $17 billion annually uh, on textiles, on plastics, on, on tech. Uh, there are lots of options as to how we could put similar sanctions in place. I dare say the other issue is Huawei and whether Canada will buy their product, if you will, or allow them to administer our 5G network. Why on earth would we do that? Put the security issues aside for a moment, which are the primary reasons we shouldn't. But in the current climate that we find ourselves, why would we continue to dangle any hope that we are going to take Huawei on as the administrator of our 5G network. Okay, I think Trudeau looks looks weak here, but on the other hand, is Trudeau, to be fair to him, is he also in a, in a difficult position given that China is such a, a large and critical trading partner with Canada with billions of dollars of trade on the line, as you mentioned? Um, is, there, is there a possibility that if we get into a trade war with China with retaliatory tariffs that we just end up shooting ourselves in the foot with a lot of consumers and businesses that rely on trade with China? Well, your question off the top, I think it's both. 
I think mm-hmm. we are in a very difficult situation. The government, the prime minister, found himself in a difficult position. But we are looking weak. And yeah. we are looking as if we're just on the receiving end of a bullying effort from China. And I think there's an element of them wanting to make an example of us. But we do have various ways in which we can push back. I, I would suggest another is to comment more publicly and more adamantly in support of the people of Hong Kong right, or Taiwan right. yeah. or Uyghurs who are being imprisoned in China or Tibetans or practitioners of Falun Gong, uh, all kinds of oppressed minorities. And Canada likes to tout itself as a champion of these people. But here's an opportunity to call China out directly and voice displeasure. We don't want to get into a, a escalating trade war, but it appears that it is being escalated, but only by one side. And we're, to use a, a hockey term, turtling as a result in this fight. Speaking of former Foreign Affairs Minister Peter McKay, you mentioned um, John McCallum, Canada's former ambassador to China, who has said some things that are, are controversial. And, and once again, I mean, here he goes again, how he, he told... Uh, the South Morning China Post newspaper, that he warned contacts he has in China's foreign ministry that if China imposes any further punishments against Canadian exports here in this feud, it could potentially help the federal conservatives win the election in the fall, and that would not be in the best interest of China. What do you think about a former Canadian ambassador making a overtly political comments like that well it's bizarre it's clearly partisan (laughs) over the top certainly unhelpful sends a very confusing mixed message similar to some of the mixed messages that were sent when he still was ambassador and was here in canada making comments about what uh, it would do for canada if they were able to somehow just simply release Ms. Meng Wanzhou, which would have enraged the Americans clearly with a 14-count indictment for breaching trade sanctions with Iran. They take these matters very seriously. While it's not certainly enjoyable and certainly it's a situation that's regrettable, we can withstand Beijing not taking our calls. When the White House stops taking our calls or stops meeting with officials, then we know we're in real trouble. So, this is a Hobbesian's choice, to be clear. We don't want to be caught between two warring superpowers in a, in a trade war. However, if we have to pick a side, I know who I'm with. Yeah, have we uh, actually appointed a new ambassador to China yet? No, we haven't. We have an acting ambassador, and that's not to suggest that this person isn't capable. We have an extremely competent public service. We have a lot of very, very capable people on the ground in China. But it doesn't carry the same diplomatic weight. And in Chinese culture, face and position and title are very important. And so having an ambassador to our second largest trading partner on an acting basis, to me, doesn't help the situation. And so even if it's naming the current person as the permanent ambassador, let's get on with it. This has been months now, and we've had these Canadians in custody Uh, getting on a year, and now more Canadians being taken into custody, including one who is on death row. Right. It it seems like in some ways that Canada's kind of in some ways stuck in the middle here of a a bigger dispute between China and the Americans, especially over the arrest of this uh, Chinese tech executive, Meng Wanzhou, as you you mentioned. What is your sort of, as a former foreign affairs minister yourself, I mean, what's your kind of gut feeling on where this is going to go? Like, I, I wonder if maybe... 
as the Americans and the Chinese sit down and work out their differences over trade and other issues that if the Americans perhaps agree to uh, drop the extradition request against Meng Wanzhou, this, uh, the Huawei executive, and maybe, maybe that's the answer to solving our problems too, if that's taken off the table. There's no question that this is very much tied and wound up in the ongoing disputes between China and the United States, but in particular, this extradition. And yet, what has complicated it for us is some of the reporting, which the Chinese follow very closely, around interference, political interference, in the case of SNC-Lavalin, the Admiral Norman case. Because what the Chinese have maintained all along is that Canada and the government, and the Prime Minister in particular, could simply say, we're going to send Ms. Menwengzo back. We're going to override our judiciary, forget about the rule of law, forget about the independence of the judiciary. Um, and that, of course, is not the case. But when they saw this well-reported scandal around these two cases that looked and smacked of political interference, they drew a moral equivalency. Yeah. And they said, well, you know, if you can do it for SNC-Lavalin, a Canadian company, why can't you do it for us and for Huawei? But, of course, China, like uh-huh. Cuba and Venezuela and, and Iran, some of the countries we buy oil and gas from, these regimes get their way. And uh, we have a much different system, of course, a much more fair, balanced system that allows for legal representation, consular visits, and the rule of law to prevail. And okay. we, are, we are in a very precarious position, in part because of our, our own dalliances uh, with the rule of law in Canada. But to come back to your question, there's no doubt that if the Americans drop the extradition request, it would become far less complicated. We'll see where it goes. Thanks for coming on with your analysis on it today. Appreciate it. Okay, you're very welcome. Okay, that is Peter McKay. He is the uh, former foreign affairs minister for Canada. He's now a partner with the international law firm Baker McKenzie. Okay, it is Space Week here on the show. Of course, it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Let's take a look back at the historic mission now and a look ahead to the future, including possibly going back to the moon. My guest is Brian Odom. He is a NASA historian. Brian, thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you for having me. Hey, Brian, this is obviously an exciting week for you. I mean, we see these anniversaries, they come and go, the the Apollo 11 moon landing. But man, the, the 50th anniversary, this one I think has really caught the public's attention this time. Yeah, this one is a little bit different. I mean, you know, we always, uh, you know, celebrate any major accomplishment. I mean, you know, we have the Hubble, you know, 25th anniversary a while back, and it got people's attention, but this is something uh, on a completely different level. How old are you, Brian? Do you remember the moon landing, or are you too well, young? <laughs> I'm 41, yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. I got one up on you then, because I was seven years old when the moon landing uh, happened, and I remember watching it with my dad, and we were all just, just amazed. Um when you look back at that 50 years ago, in, in the run-up to the moon landing, I, I, everyone remembers President Kennedy making the commitment before the 1960s were out to get this done. Was there any, uh, looking back as an historian, was there any pessimism in the, in the wind back then? That w- was this even possible to do? Well, I think so. I think, you know, even Kennedy himself, you know, from time to time when he came back to the, you know, to the, is this something we can do? He really, you know, 
did return to the NASA administrator, you know, Jim Webb, and he says, you know, look, Webb, we're, you know, we're spending a lot of money on this. Is this something we still think we could do? So even the guy at the top who had the dream, you know, he still questioned it. You know, in, in 1961, when Kennedy was asking, you know, we're going to go back, we're going to go to the moon, right? So this is a major accomplishment. It's going to be a, a huge thing. But is this even possible? And people in the workforce here, you know, those technologies that they were going to have to invent, you know, the internal the guidance computer up at Draper Labs, you know, in, in Massachusetts, was this something that they could accomplish? I mean, the, you know, the engines themselves, those F1s, they're, they're huge, massive engines, and they had these, you know, tons of problems and challenges all throughout. So, yeah, I think there was a lot of skepticism, but it was one of these things where, you know, you've got the commitment from the president, and you've got those resources that they're being put into the program. So, you know, it's really just a matter of following through and doing what you got to do. Looking back on it now, 50 years later, as an historian, Brian, what what would you say is kind of the historic significance of the events 50 years ago this week? Yeah, well, it's, you know, I think it means a little something for ev- different for everyone. But I mean, for me personally, looking at it the way I have, you know, I have the privilege to do is it's, you know, it's an accomplishment that, you know, for humanity, it's something that people had kind of dreamed about with science fiction, you know, Jules Verne talking about, you know, firing out of a cannon and going to the moon, you know, and, and that's kind of how far along that was. And even in the 1940s, people, it was still science fiction. In the 1950s, it kind of became a reality with things like Sputnik, uh, you know, and eventually Yuri Gagarin, and, and we kind of get the ball rolling from there. But, you know, it was just, it's such a, it was such a incredible thing. It was in, in the context of the Cold War that, you know, these things took on different meanings that are sometimes lost today. And, you know, from yeah. Kennedy's perspective, again, it was something that he didn't lose because he understood, you know, international prestige in the Cold War was, was one of the primary factors here. So, you know, looking at all those different contexts is just really interesting. Yeah, and it's fascinating to look back at the, the 1960s in general as such a, a turbulent period and kind of domestic history for the United States, but also around the world, like you mentioned, with the Cold War and everything. I, I wonder if looking back at, at the time, was there anyone saying, like, why are we doing this? Couldn't we spend the money better on something else? Exactly. I mean, you know, like just as you mentioned, the civil rights movement that was unfolding you know, throughout that entire decade, the Vietnam War, you know, was something that uh, where the Cold War could become hot at any moment. And it was just, you know, no one knew what the next day was going to be. You know, after Kennedy's assassinated in in November of 63, Johnson, you know, President Lyndon Johnson, then turns a lot of the attention from after the Civil Rights Act to the war on poverty. So, you know, and I think that really comes to a head at the the launch of Apollo uh, 11, where, you know, the Poor People's Campaign under the, you know, uh, Ralph Abernathy, you know, they meet at the Cape and to really protest what, you know, this is something that, you know, maybe we could do something if, you know, can't these funds be used for something else? But I think ultimately it's the idea that, you know, it's moments like Apollo 11 that really make us understand, you know, the how, what we can achieve. And that began to be tied up in people's minds that, you know, if we can do this, you know, in the old cliche, right, if we can land a man on the moon, why can't we A, B, C, D? Yeah. It, it, it's almost a conflict of ideologies where you can think at one time there's nothing we can accomplish. So if there are problems, why are they still there? But I think we understand that the, uh, the you know, what that program did for America was gave it, you know, a reason to hope. And really the world, as you say, because, you know, the Cold War was a global conflict in every corner, you know, South Africa, you know, in African nations that had become independent, uh, in Southeast Asia, na- nations that were new, young nations, and what trajectories they would take. So all these things were still unfolding within that context. So it was a 
Very incredible and important yeah. time. Looking back at the moon landing with NASA historian Brian Odom. Hey, Brian, let's look a little forward now. Do you think uh, we'll go back to the moon? I do, without a doubt. The plan is right now uh, we're going to go put human beings back on the moon uh, in 2024, the first first woman and the first man. Uh, right now we're building the launch vehicle for that here at NASA. It's the uh, Space Launch System, or SLS, which is a, you know the next big deep space exploration vehicle. We're going to go not alone because I think the world, you know, kind of what we talked about, the world of Apollo isn't the world of today. If we're going to go do these things, if we're going to go back to the moon and then on to Mars and explore deep space, it's going to take everybody. It's going to take, you know, national commitments. I mean, I know, you know, the Canadian uh, government has already, you know, in the Canadian relationship with NASA over the years, I don't have to tell you, I mean, it's just been incredibly important back during the Apollo program. Space Shuttle, you know, the Canadian arm, the International Space Station, all of the astronauts that have come through this program from Canada, you know, so it's a, you know, that's what it's going to take to do these things. Nas- international commitments, private industry, you know, we talk a lot about what the work that SpaceX and Blue Origin are doing now, and it's going to take all of that because these things are incredibly challenging. Space travel hasn't gotten easy over the years. You know, new technologies have come along that have revolutionized this, but nothing's still easy about it. It takes these big commitments from everyone. Yeah, I think it's going to happen, too, and I think it will be an international effort as well, for sure. And it's really exciting when you think about it. Like, some people might think, well, we've already sort of been there, done that. Why would you want to go back? But haven't they discovered water on the moon? And does that make it possible to maybe set up a habitat there and and keep, like, almost maybe even a a permanent uh, presence there? That's exactly right. There's so much we don't know about the moon. We, when we went to the moon during the Apollo program, we covered a very small area. Now we're going to go back to the lunar south pole, a place where they have discovered the, you know, the located hydrogen cells. So, I mean, it, you're thinking about, hmm, so there's, there's these, you know, could be is frozen, you know, frozen water on the planet. If we're going to go back to the moon, too, it's going to be a sustainable presence. We've got to mine the resources there in sight and then move on to Mars. So, you know, there's things like helium-3, you know, like, if we if we could tap into a resource like helium three on the moon, we could revolutionize the way we produce energy back here on Earth. So, going back to the moon has a has the incredible potential to really revolutionize the way not only we think about deep space exploration, but trade offs and spin offs back here to Earth that might you know really get, be game changers. I mean. You think about the technological paradigm shift that happens with Apollo, where you enter that with one set of technology and miniaturization, solid-state computers, and just the major breakthroughs that happen to to support that program. If we have to go to Mars, imagine how challenging that's going to be and what some of those spinoffs might be, things we can't even imagine today that, you know, 30 years from now, we won't be able to live without. Brian, it's exciting stuff, man. Thanks a lot for coming on to talk about it today. Hey, you got it. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. All right, that is Brian Odom. He's an historian at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, part of our Space Week here on the show, looking back at the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon mission.